The talk um, tonight is entitled Wanting the Payoff and the Pain. But before I do, I just want to mention uh, that uh, sort of how to use a Dharma talk to sort of raise ourselves up. Um, It's not um, the entertainment for the evening, although some may see it as so. It's more like going to um, a Shakespearean play or an orchestration of a great work, uh, Beethoven or something, where you have to raise yourself up. I'm not claiming that level of... (laughs) It's a metaphor. (laughs) Where you you have to raise up to meet what is being said. The Dharma is like that. You have to raise up to raise up to the Dharma. And, um, and so it can't, it, it's an active involvement. Uh, so, so wanting, I chose um, because I thought it fit well um, with what Carol was talking about last night. I hope that it's not going to be too much duplication, but it, I think it, it extends that talk out. And because it's um, having uh, enjoyed a few weeks of retreating over at the New Forest Refuge, um, that particular aspect of practice was very current on my plate. So some fresh ideas came about it, and uh, I'd like to share those. One thing that uh, was real... um, clear to me was that unless I knew, unless I had an open invitation to look at desire and didn't hold it in some kind of um, disparaging way, which many of us can do when we have a spiritual orientation, we have certain key words that we kind of, our back goes up a little bit on, like attachment, you know, or ego, that sort of Arrogance. And what that does is that um, it doesn't invite, um, it's not an invitation. When, when we have that kind of reaction, it's not an invitation for exploration, but rather to hold it so that it doesn't get out of control. And if we're afraid of it getting out of control, if we're afraid of it taking over control, if we're afraid of what the effects might be upon us to really open to something, then there will be an incomplete understanding of it. And many of us have had that kind of relationship with a variety of mind states, like anger. You know, okay, for a number of years when it came, okay, just keep it contained. It's like, it's like, uh, let's calcify it real quick. So I'm shielded from what, you know, you hold it at bay, down in your gut somewhere, feeling it, Okay, anger, anger. But no exploration of it. And then, of course, it does go away. And you think, okay, there, good, now. (laughs) Successful moment of yoga, yogi, mind there in meditation. But um, what it requires uh, for me, and I think for most people, is, is a genuine intimacy with these very critical subjects without any fear whatsoever. 
in going into them. A ruthlessness. And say, okay, I don't know what's going to happen when I go into this thing, but unless I do, I will always be under its influence. Forever. That influence may seem less dramatic because I've sort of packaged it, calcified it into a corner of my mind so that it doesn't have quite the controlling influence it used to. But a complete freedom of it requires making the something that we're taking it to be into the nothing of its truth. It's not to hold it as a smaller something. Like putting an Alka-Seltzer tablet in a glass of water and watching it shrink and, okay, I'm getting a handle on it now, it's smaller. It's when it dissolves completely that we're free. And dissolution doesn't mean, it means that it becomes transparent. It means you can walk through it. It doesn't bother you in the least, like a breeze. Form is emptiness. So how to do that requires a ruthlessness. And ruthlessness, I don't mean an abrasiveness. I mean, come what may, here I go. Here I go. So wanting is of that nature. I mean, it's at the core of the second noble truth. The Buddha thought it was so important. It's at the basis of the foundation of his teaching. And desire, when we say, oh, we can feel it, okay, but do we know it? Do we know what it is? Do we know how it, what, why is it that we lose our, where do we lose our footing within it? What is it that happens in there that makes it such a central component of the teaching? So we want to look at that. We want to look at the payoff, what I get from it. If we don't understand how it feeds me, why would we be doing it? We're getting something out of this thing. So we can't just cast it away as being, you know, a damnable mind state. To, we have to, we're getting something out of it. Let's look and see what we're getting out of it. And if it takes us to enjoyment, okay, let's look at that. But we're not anti-pleasure. We just want to explore our relationship to these things, as Carol was saying last night. So what is wanting? Let's start very basic. A feeling of something missing, something that needs to be added. It could be relationship, material thing, self-complaint. It leads to complaining, doesn't it? When we don't, when we have that sense of, of lacking, of something missing, it leads to complaining. It leads to judgment leads to a whole sense of inward misery, envy, jealousy. The permutations of this mind state are endless, all from that sense of something missing, that incompletion. And then there can be this free-floating dissatisfaction that we have. Have you ever gone to the refrigerator and just opened it? And just like, okay. I don't really want, it's sort of wanting, but nothing, you know. (laughs) It's like the chicken leg, no. (laughs) Gave up meat. Tofu, uh, close the door back. And this kind of haunting 
haunting quality to it. So, okay, so now let's look. Let's look at the payoff. What do we get from it? It's very interesting when you when you say, okay, let's just look at this thing. What's the payoff of wanting? Well, you know what it dawned on me? It's hope. In my miserable condition of sense of lacking, desire gives me hope. It says, okay, this moment will improve. It gives me something to look forward to. Like the mail that Guy talked about in his talk. <laughs> gives me something, you know, it's like... And there's an endearing quality to it. You see, you can't just throw it all out. I think there can be a deep spiritual quality in desire. Because it's the desire for completion. Now, we each have a deep yearning, or you wouldn't be in the room here doing this very hard work, that propels us, that compels us, really. And that, I think, is the heart's message. But then the mind, as that message percolates through the mind, it can become a desire. Desire. So the mind encrustates and invests in things, and so it only knows how to particularize and invest, so this deep yearning then becomes an investment in things. I need that for completion. So there can be, and you can, we can see this, as a heart element, really, a yearning for completion. Now there's another value payoff to this, which is extraordinary in its implications. And that is that it allows me to survive. It allows myself to survive. It allows the sense of me. Because when I have reality and I want something other than what is being given, there is an inherent struggle. You have reality, and you have what you want from reality, and which is missing. And so there's a struggle, inherent, in wanting something over and above what is here. It so happens that the sense of me, the sense of self, arises in struggle. And so we have a complicit need to struggle in order to keep our sense of self-definition. The more we struggle, the more defined we are. Are you ever more defined than when you're angry? Which is the heat of battle. And the self-righteous quality within that. I mean, you, you are on top of the world, right? And so we 
can be, it's not a conscious understanding, but an almost unconscious quality of perpetuating struggle in order to be defined. I know myself. When I'm working for something, I'm working hard, I'm staying this, I've got a problem here, I'm fixing this, got to communicate here, got this going. And have you ever been less defined than when you're quiet, when you're still? And so much of our wanting comes from a reaction to stillness. You wonder why we've created an environment here that has one purpose and one purpose only. To bring you to stillness. No talking, no reading, no writing, no looking at each other. No responsibilities. Getting the fork to your mouth is about as far as it goes. And we've even fed people. Because, and you can see what we have built between our mat and the environment, which is conducive to being quiet, and what we have between ourselves and that quiet. Look, look, no one has done a thing to you maliciously. I mean, the worst thing that could have happened is, I don't know what, you didn't have enough pasta or something. I don't know what I mean. It isn't, but it's like what can ha- how our minds can struggle with that because we need to. Again, you see, as we do this, this isn't a a crude um, indictment of me. This has to be heartfelt. We get nowhere belittling or degrading the process. It has to all be felt from the heart. Okay, well, I need to survive. I need to feel me. I need to have my self-image. There's still something there that is feeding me through my image, and I'm afraid to live without it. You see the tenderness that that can... It's a call for tenderness to look. Oh, okay. And it's not, you just, oh, the looking is all. The looking is everything. The looking is everything. We don't have to do anything about it. That's the beauty. That is the, the absolute beauty. I mean, in science there's, I think it's called the law of parsimony or parsimony, where something by its sheer elegance is true because of its elegance. The Dharma is like that. That's why I, I say we have to raise ourselves up to that degree of elegance. Because when you, when you see how it's packaged, and when you see what we have to do is nothing, which is the only way to unpackage the problem, 
which has been mind created anyway, then the whole thing goes, ah, of course. Of course. So wanting gives me a sense of self-definition. It gives me, when there is friction, struggle, I know my boundaries. I know I'm distinct from that which I'm struggling against. So that's huge. Now, in order for us to come to understand desire completely, the payoff begins to diminish in terms of the pain that we begin to see being caused from this strategy. So when the payoff, when the payoff is diminished, in this, when, when the pain is more predominant than the payoff, then we will give it up. So now we have to explore the pain of wanting. Because, and it's real interesting, we don't look at the mind state as being the problem. We look at, we, we say it was my fault. I didn't try hard enough. I didn't get what I wanted because I didn't try hard enough. Next time, you see, we, we degrade ourselves or we say circumstantially, you know, I didn't get the job or is the weather or something. It's something external or it's me. But it's, the problem is never with the mind state itself because we don't, even realize that the relationship has much to do with it. We think we're doing it. Now, there are three, I mean, this is just for me. I'm sure there are many, many more aspects of the pain. But there's the pain that drives the wanting. There's the pain of the wanting itself what desire feels like, and there's the pain of the separation that comes from desire. So we're just going to explore those three aspects of pain. The pain of insufficiency. That's an interesting one. Because culturally, we have been encouraged to want. In fact, I read somewhere that the average... American has something like 16,000 advertising images per week if they watch the normal amount of TV and are on the computer the normal amount of hours or whatever. And each image of an advertisement of a market economy says, you need this. And thereby leaving us with a sense of insufficiency or inadequacy without it. Now, if you have 16,000 of those in a week, times 52 weeks, times the number of years you're alive, what you're left with is a sense of self-inadequacy. It's no longer tied to the refrigerator, the better car, the new toaster. 
it becomes an image or an idea or an explanation or a definition of the way I am. I am insufficient. I am inadequate. So we have what I think is the true epidemic of our time, and that's self-unworthiness. I know very few, very few Westerners that are in, that don't, that have somehow escaped that curse. And the way that plays out in terms of our emotions is that there's this kind of white noise of wanting, of lacking in the background. It's kind of the buzz. Wanting. You don't even know what it is. But it keeps us looking outward. It keeps us externally focused. And the sinister aspect of it is that the economy wouldn't survive without that. That's why I believe that mysticism will never have a predominant focus in this culture because it can't take it. It, Small pockets will be fine. But if it gets too big, it will become outlawed like it has in the past in histories. Because the economy will survive. So don't threaten it. Okay, so we have this sense of lacking, this sense of, of, of neediness, this kind of inward poverty, the assumption of insufficiency is, creates an attitude about myself And we move through life with that. And we can, in practice, when we're sitting, to, to bring it a little more into the practice focus, there can be kind of an unfulfilling desire, this kind of wanting, that can lead to a kind of a dullness and lethargy of mind, a sort of, of um, lethargy of spirit almost. Flirting with practice, not really committed to it. Because the wanting is like, do I really want to do this? It's, keeps us hedging our bets. And it doesn't, this feels like more pain, not alleviation from pain. And when I'm sitting by myself quietly, all I feel is my pain. All I feel is this insufficiency. Why do I want to take on a practice that rubs that in my face? So I go off into thought a little bit because for God's sake, my vacation in Hawaii was at least something I can So you see what happens is that because of this white noise of insufficiency, we look for pleasure to take it away. Because in the moment I can conceive of a thought of something, then that thought dissipates or takes me away or distracts me from that insufficiency. And so the thought serves both as a pleasant response, but also 
as a counterbalance to the pain I hold inside. So no wonder we think a lot. No wonder we're addicted to that. Dreaming. Oh, on and on. And if we look, you see, the thought gives me hope away from my insufficiency. It gives me some relief from it. Now, it's very interesting how this culture holds on to hope as is such an important aspect. Don't take away my hope. Because to take away my hope leaves me with my sense of incompleteness. It's interesting in hospice care, just a hospice story. In hospice care, when people are close to death, oftentimes the nature of their hope changes from hope of longevity, from hope of a long life, future, which is what hope is oriented towards, the hope of quality time, the hope of having a moment of real um, intimacy or importance here and now. Because hope has everything to do with future, of, of not now, because now is too painful, but in the future, if I do this or that or gain this or that, then, then, There's a story, I used to tell a story. It's a 45-year-old lawyer. This was uh, many years ago, so it was before the age of computers. And this lawyer had a um, small five-year-old child. And he was dying of some type of cancer, which I can't remember anymore. But he was um, studiously trying to find uh, a cure for this cancer, and his book, I remember him sitting on the bed with textbooks all over the bed where he was looking for new experimental uh, cures for his type of cancer, and to the point where he once went to the bathroom while I was in the house, in the room there with him, he went to the bathroom, and his five-year-old son, who had be, he had been ignoring, took the textbooks off his bed and put them under the bed. so that he would pay attention to him. And when he came back, the man from the bathroom scolded his son for having done that and asked him to leave the room. And I thought, here is a man who hopes for a cure so that he can have quality time with his family once he's cured, and he's bypassing the quality of time with his family in order to get to that cure the very thing he needs and most desperately wants for his life, hope is getting in the way. I said, this is a really statement of our, of our whole way we live. That the things that are most meaningful to us, we bypass. Because we think, well, I'll get to that in the future. So we to understand that. Understand that. That that's the way we live. 
driven by the pain of lacking. Now what's the pain of wanting itself like? Let's explore the pain of wanting itself. When I was a monk, monks are completely celibate. But that doesn't stop the mind from generating its own fantasies. And you'd sit there and, you know, you're a young man and uh, completely celibate and your mind is... And you can feel the desire, sexual desire, starting to work, you know. And then, you know, because there is no release at all, it's just the, the feeling of the desire just the feeling of it, the neediness of it, the physicality of a desire. And you sit with that for a few, and you go, then it starts up and you just, that's it, the mind doesn't go there. It just, it's not aversion, it's discriminating wisdom. It doesn't go there. It doesn't hold it anymore. I was, over at the Forest Refuge, I was, the first night, and this, a common theme for me is I get into these retreats in the, years and years ago, Oh, it's going to be, I'm going to be so lonely. It's going to be, oh, you know, I'm going to be all... I walked into my room first night, and that thought flickered. It was like, like that. And it stopped dead in its tracks. Just like, the mind gave it no energy whatsoever. Not, and, and not a, a murmur for the next three weeks of time. You see something... Mind sees it, it knows its pain of it, no longer willing to pay, buy into the payoff. Oh, I'm so lonely. Oh, oh gosh, miserable me. If it's not willing to buy into that, it's like that. So to understand what a desire feels like, not the longing for the pleasure of something that isn't here, but what the desire feels, because the desire is the bridge between what is given and what one wants imaginatively. It's not here. It's future-oriented. It's a thought. It's a world created fictitiously. Improved world. This one's not good enough Okay, that one's better. The little bubble on the comic strip. That one's better. And then we live according to the bubble. Here's here's the image that I have. You're on a high dive. Diving board. Very flexible. You jump up. You hit the diving board. That's contact. feeling, wanting, the board compresses, depending upon the strength of that wanting, the board compresses down, then flings you into the air of thought. Now you're thinking about all the things you want to want, 
Want to all love this? Except the pool doesn't have any water in it. But thought certainly thinks it does. I'm going to have a great time swimming. It's just going to be the best. And we notice that it has no context at all except the context of the imaginative. You see, that is at the core of the issue. Is this truth? Or is it imaginative? Is it reality? Or is it the concept of hope? And where are we going to live? Which one? Well, this one's so much more pleasant, except the pool's dry. This one is uncomfortable. This one, I don't feel complete. I feel discontent. There's a rub. My knee hurts. I'm upset. I'm restless. Why would I want to be here? You see? So the mind selects the fantasy because it believes it can control reality sufficiently to make the fantasy real. It believes that. And we have an unmistakable we have an unmistakable mark in this culture in terms of our need to control. So wanting, that agitation with the hope of something rescuing me. It's very interesting. You know, if you take something you're wanting, like say chocolate, that's my, one of my things, chocolate, okay. So I take chocolate, I have wanting, okay, so then you put the talk chocolate on your tongue. The wanting's still there. You chew the chocolate. The wanting's still there. You swallow it, and there's a moment of peace. But the moment of peace is not because you've consumed the chocolate. It's because I'm not wanting anymore. It's because the desire isn't there anymore. So you're sitting, 
towards the end of the sitting, been a hard sitting. The teacher picks up the... There's only one sound that matters to you. (laughs) Birds can be chirping. (laughs) Morning doves. I don't give a damn. (laughs) Where is that sound? Then, just an incredible agitation. Then, (gasps) I could sit forever. Why could we sit forever? Because the wanting's gone. Nothing's changed. It's just that the wanting's not there anymore. The sound that we have needed has arrived. Isn't that interesting? See that. So the third component, the pain of separation. See, it's interesting because to want life, we have to break the egg in two. We have to objectify it. Right? You can't want and be at the same time. And so if we want something, there has to be a wanter in the thing that's wanted. And so we create the dichotomy, the dualism, again, for the sense of self and mastery and struggle. And now I can go after what I want. But what was it like before the egg split, when the egg was whole? You see, we keep splitting it moment after moment, conceptually, because that's the only way we can split the egg, through the imaginative fiction of something I need. I split the egg in two, right? Because reality is together. The fact of reality is it's together. But in order for me to want, I have to create a sense of separation so that I'm here and that is there. And I have to hold that sense of separation through struggle. Wanting, trying to get the thing that I want, rather than relaxing into the whole in which I am everything. It's just so interesting why we do this. We live one step away from this world, which forces the world into two worlds. The one step away is the conceptualization of it. It forces us to think in terms of self or other, and this or that. And then we live with that sense of separation and its loneliness, sense of isolation, sense of existential angst. And that's what we feel like we need because we don't have trust that the egg comes back together and that that we will survive it. 
we won't. Not in the way we conceive, but perhaps in a different way, perhaps in a fullness, perhaps in contentment. So what does it mean then if I want to see or feel the whole of the egg once more? I must deal with the discomforts that are arising now, the sense of lacking that has driven me towards desire, that which compels desire or pushes desire, that sense of lacking. What happens if I did nothing? What happens if I didn't conceive away from that? The conceptualization was to get over, to get rid of that feeling. But what happens if I just owned it? If I just, okay, let me feel this. It's our worst case scenario. We're afraid that if we allow ourselves to feel insufficient, we will confirm the belief that we are insufficient. And because that's a nightmare image for us, we keep trying to get over the insufficiency so that we can then claim our birthright of contentment. But it doesn't work. So we have to come back to the sense of insufficiency or of inadequacy and deal with the fear of the beliefs that we have from it. Okay, okay. Let me feel this. And then what happens is it's not a problem. But there's another problem below that, and that is we have created the insufficiency to keep us away from stillness. As long as I'm insufficient, I have enough noise to block myself from resting in stillness. Because when we're in stillness, we have no definition at all. At least when I'm insufficient, I have a poor definition. So now I don't put anything between myself and insufficiency, and I don't justify it. I don't look out from it in order to compensate for it. And then there's quiet, there's stillness, unformed. And there is complete contentment. And desire makes no sense whatsoever in this world because it's all there. And I need to know that it's safe. but it will never allow me to know that. And so we use our mindfulness constantly as the base of our stillness to examine the movement of desire, its limitations, its rewards, 
always looking, always learning. come to rest. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.